0: Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our first episode, managing editor Emily Gooden talks with former Bush press secretary Ari Fleischer about the first impressions the Trump administration is making and its relationship with the press. Then, Joel Wykenot, the managing editor of Real Clear World, Talks to Vera Vicky Freiberga, the former president of Latvia, about how a vulnerable NATO ally is reacting to the expected foreign policy of President Trump. It's part of Real Clear World series on America's role in the world under the Trump administration. Check it out at RealClearWorld.com. First up, Emily Gooden talks to Ari Fleischer.
1: We're joined today by Ari Flesher, who was President George W. Bush's press secretary from 2001 to 2003. Thanks for being here, Ari. My pleasure. I wanted to start off by talking about the first impressions that the Trump administration has made. We all saw on Saturday when Sean Spicer came out to lecture the press corps on their coverage of the inauguration crowds, but then on Monday in his first press briefing we saw a little more conciliatory note and a little more friendly press secretary. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on the first impressions that the Trump administration is making in the public relations arena.
2: Well, I think as always with the Trump administration, with President Trump, if you like him, you love it. If you don't like him, he's given you more reasons to not like him. Uh, I try to see the issue from both sides. And my take on how Sean did was Saturday was a mistake by the White House. The White House fumbled on Saturday, but Sean recovered the fumble on Monday and made a first down. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm curious, too, your thoughts on this kind of incident with the Martin Luther King bus in the Oval Office. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is mainly because the administration keeps bringing it up. And so what happened is the White House press pool, which is the small group of reporters that go into a presidential event because not everyone can fit, and they write up a little report. They went into the Oval Office Saturday night and the reporter wrote that the Martin Luther King bust had been removed from the Oval Office. And later it was shown that it is actually in the Oval Office, the reporter just didn't see it or missed it, or there was a mistake made that the reporter apologized for. But we've seen the Trump administration bring this up over and over again. And I'm, I'm wondering about two things. Are they going to nitpick a lot on the media and Hold the media, media accountable for as they said and is this really truly bothering them or is it a bigger issue
2: well two things number one you're right the reporter apologized right away but this exposes one of the fundamental flaws of how journalism works these days why didn't the reporter a good reporter Zeke Miller from Time magazine stop and ask a White House official if the bus had indeed been removed before he hit Twitter why did he tweet first and ask later And this is a fundamental flaw in journalism. Reporters are under pressure from Twitter and social media to be fast and to be first and not to be accurate. And frankly, I don't blame the White House for using this as an example. They're right to use an example and the pressure to dwell on this instead of just giving a short shrift and reverse the situation. Let's say Donald Trump accused an opponent of doing something. And then he, two minutes later, realized he was wrong and he apologized. Do you think for a second the press would focus on Donald Trump's apology? The press would do exactly what Donald Trump is doing. They would dwell on the first mistake made and say, how could you have said that in the first place? Why did you say that in the first place? The press would never say that's nitpicking. That's called regular coverage of how the press does it, and now the press doesn't like it when the way they cover people is being applied to them.
1: And that's a good segue to my next question, which is kind of You know, from the media's point of view, as a member of the media, we struggle with this. How do you call out mistakes because or sometimes deliberate exaggerations? And I'm thinking of a headline that's in The New York Times on Tuesday morning that says Trump repeats election lie in meeting with top lawmakers. And they're talking about how he said illegal immigrants kept him from winning the popular election. There were questions about their estimates of the inauguration crowds. How do you hold each other accountable without getting into fistfights?
2: Well, here's my advice to the press. Number one, be neutral, be fair, be accurate. If you do that, things will fall in place. Two, just cover it and let the implications be decided by the American people. Go on to your next story. What what I think is the problem here is the press reports when Donald Trump does say something wrong. The New York Times today called that a lie about the number of undocumented voters Fine, if that's what they want to write, write it. But then don't look for the country to rise up in umbrage and storm the gates of the White House and try to throw Donald Trump out. Just report it and let your readers and your viewers interpret it and deal with it as they will. But there's such a tendency of reporters to say how could he possibly do this? How could this happen? Something has to change. No. Your job is to cover the news. It's up to the American people to decide if something needs to change. And they'll do that when they go into the voting booths in two years. So just report the news, be patient, and leave the implications to the American people.
1: That's interesting because in the briefing on Monday, Sean Spicer said that he feels like the media's default narrative is negative. And I'm curious what your experience has been from the White House press briefing. I
2: think think Sean's 100% right about that. And it's particularly difficult if you're a Republican. I I started on Capitol Hill as a press secretary in 1983, and I've seen this my entire career that there is an ideological bias in the media against Republicans. It's so much easier to be a Democrat working with the press than it is a Republican. The, The press has a proclivity to see issues much more through a Democratic lens than a Republican lens. And it shows up regularly in the coverage. I've never known an administration that didn't complain to some degree about press coverage. And that comes with a territory. Reporters should have thick skin and be used to it. But frankly, it doesn't matter if you are covering a president who loves you and praises you or is critical of you. The only job of the press is to be fair, neutral, and accurate.
1: And maybe we can talk about kind of the broader relationship between a White House and the press corps, not just specifically this one, because it is a symbiotic relationship. They are a little dependent on one another.
2: No question. It's a symbiotic relationship, and it's a long-term relationship. You, You have to recognize you're going to be working in close quarters with reporters for a long time. But here's the reason I think it's gotten so much more tense today. The Gallup poll came out in October that showed that trust by the American people in the press to report the news fully, fairly, and accurately is at a historical low. Only 13% of Republicans trust the press, only 30% of independents, and only 51% of Democrats. This is a crisis for journalism. Journalists have lost the faith of the American people. And I think the reasons you're seeing the Gallup poll show it's so pronounced, particularly among Republicans and independents, is because the press was largely soft on President Obama for 80 years. And unless and until Republic, the press can regain the trust of the American people, they will make themselves vulnerable to whatever changes or fights Donald Trump wants to make or get into. The press has got to take seriously the decline in trust the American people have held for them. It's a real crisis in what the press has been doing. And I don't think the press takes it seriously. I think they acknowledge there's a problem and they just go back to the same old
3: habits.
1: I'm curious how you think that trust can be repaired. And I'm thinking of a talk Marty Baron, the Washington Post uh, editor in chief gave to Vanity Fair, where he said, we've lost being the voice for those who feel left out, for those who feel they're being passed over by the system. And that was his take on it. And I'm curious what yours is.
2: I totally agree with that. I think what you have here is an insider-outsider issue. And the the press, particularly in Washington, consists so much of people who are traditionalists, insiders, have seen it the way it's been in Washington forever, and they just can't relate to a guy like Donald Trump. They don't like him personally, and the changes Donald Trump wants to make leave them uncomfortable. And I'll give you an example. When President Obama won, the press immediately said the race was historic. His win was historic, first African-American president. Fair enough. If Hillary had won, I think you'd have the same coverage, historic, first woman president. Fair enough. Why didn't the press regularly from Election Day forward say how historic Donald Trump's victory was? Why wasn't that the tone of inauguration? First outsider elected as president. I think the reason is the word historic connotes a certain acceptance and admiration of that event because it is indeed historic the press sees things through the similar lens the democrats do racial politics gender politics but not insider outsider politics and until newsrooms get more ideological diversity and diversity in terms of the people who in the newsrooms who think differently from washington insiders the press is going to continue this biased approach
1: That's interesting because one thought I always had during the election was that the more President Obama and all these other people campaigned against Donald Trump, the more they helped him because it did help with that message you were talking about that, you know, the elites are with Hillary Clinton. I'm one of you. I'm an outsider. I've been passed over by the system too. And I'm wondering if this will continue going forward in his administration.
2: That's exactly right, I think. And that's why it's going to be easy for Donald Trump to look for these fights and to get into big fights with the press because he's increasingly recognized that if the press criticizes him it really doesn't matter to republicans and it really doesn't matter to seventy percent of the independents in this country because they just don't trust the press the press and this is tragic because we need a press that people trust has made itself an imperfect vehicle a non-trusted vehicle and it's not good for anybody if that's the case i would much rather wake up read the paper and say That's the way it is, and say, I need to read several alternative versions because I'm not sure that this version is an accurate one. It's just a slanted one. And that's, unfortunately, the position the press has brought itself into.
1: And I'm curious, too, your thoughts on some of the changes that they're bringing to the White House briefing room. We saw Sean Spicer on Monday call on different outlets, not just the traditional wire services and the news networks. He went around the room, as they say. And he's going to bring in reporters via Skype, reporters who can't be in D.C. And what are your thoughts on all that?
2: Well, I welcome this. In fact, I advocated for this in a column I wrote with Mike McCurdy, uh, President Bill Clinton's former press secretary for Columbia Journalism Review. Mike and I wrote that they should rotate the reporters in the room. And it gets to what we talked about earlier. It's an attempt to bring outside thinking into the press room. The White House press room is really the bastion the final bastion, the strongest bastion of mainstream media. It is largely set up the way Americans received their news in the 90s, which is the importance and domination of the mainstream media. In a world in which nobody gets their news like, very few people get their news like that these days. Most Americans now get their news from a wide diversity of sources, not the few powerful sources that controlled news in the 90s. And the briefing room should reflect that. So I'm all for diversification of reporters' voices in that newsroom, left, right, and center, business reporters, foreign reporters, dot-com reporters. Newt Gingrich has an idea of let average American citizens ask questions. I think that's a good idea, too. I I would break the monopoly of the mainstream reporters who largely own the 49 seats that are in the briefing room, democratize the room, and open it up to others to ask interesting, different questions.
1: But hasn't social media changed this relationship, too, because it has given the White House an outlet around the press corps, and we really saw President Obama use that.
2: Absolutely. Social media and the technology the White Houses now have has changed everything. When I was there, if I had even thought about releasing a video, and I was there in 2001 to 2003, it would have been called government propaganda.
1: Oh, the Barney cam
2: was great. We did do a Barney cam. We attached a little camera to Barney the dog, and he wandered around. People loved it. Uh, You could do it with a light touch. If you ever tried to do it on something serious, a policy, the press would have hammered us for government propaganda. But now, with technology and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, it's so easy to do, and it's accepted. And so, yes, it's easy for the White Houses now to go around the press corps, But my point here is the responsible thing is to go through the press corps and go around the press corps. Talk to the American people through a variety of means. The mainstream media should not have a a monopoly on how people receive their news from the White House.
1: And finally, are we going to see the Trump administration and the White House press corps continue to come to blows, or do we think they're going to be able to hug it out?
2: You know, I think it's going to vary from day to day and from week to week. Uh, Donald Trump was elected to change Washington, and change in Washington includes changing how the press court thinks. So it won't surprise me if there are are fights along the way on a regular basis that comes with change. And I just hope that the fights are much more like Monday's briefing than Saturday's briefing. It's not helpful to anybody if it's vituperative, if it's over the top, if it's too angry. Uh, There will be flashes of that as part of the briefing. But it's a long-term relationship, and the best long-term relationships are ones that are have a little more thought and a little more calm to them, as much as you're going to fight anyway.
1: <laughs> and that's a great note to end on. Thanks for being with us.
2: You're welcome. It's my pleasure.
0: Finally, Joel Wykenot talks to President Freiberga. Uh, who is it
4: among Latvian people who find Trump attractive it's quite it's it's quite a, a, a con- I,
3: I talked to uh, to um, <laughs> uh, to one of the neighbors uh, of mine in, out in the countryside who is a uh, um, who is a hunter, you see, and, and, and very much a He-Man, and, and he thought that, uh, you know, he sort of liked that He-Man image that, that uh, Mr. Trump <laughs> uh, projected. I, I, I think many people interviewed, uh, as I was watching television, of those who attended the inauguration on the street. They seemed to be attracted to the image he projects. Uh, but uh, generally, of course, I think, uh, so to be serious about it, uh, what does concern us as well as uh, friendly i think um, and many europeans is uh, uh the uh, newly elected presidents, uh, I mean newly presidents um, the newly conferred presidents way of looking at the world uh, uh, phrases like uh, uh, everybody has gotten rich at americas expense and uh, um, and it seems like he's positioning America as alone, us against the rest of the world, and this is completely the contrary of what, for decades, America has stood for. Uh, and truly, it's uh, disconcerting. Um, first of all, uh, the transatlantic link, his uh, scepticism about uh, about NATO, um, his uh, doubts about. Uh, how much uh, the U.S. should be investing in it and in the defense. Uh, it is a very serious
4: question. Could you explain from a Latvian point of view to a skeptical American audience why a, an arrangement between Putin and Trump or between Russia and the U.S. Uh, concerning Central Europe and Eastern Europe would actually make war more likely?
3: Well, let's start with a a post-World War II period uh, where after being allies against Nazi Germany, um, uh, Russia and the United States quickly became uh, the leaders of two opposing poles in the world, uh, the democratic or the free world uh, and the communist world. uh, And each accusing the other of, of having imperialistic designs than wishing to extend its influence. And to some extent, uh, you could say that, well, uh, wishing to extend democracy to the rest of the world, um, you may call that imperialistic, but it's not quite the same thing as imposing a totalitarian ideology. So that was what the Cold War was about. All through the all the presidents that you have had in the States, have been absolutely uh, unanimous uh, in their position uh, in terms of uh, the wish to restore democracy in the whole of Europe and not just the part that was liberated uh, after the end of World War II by the Allied forces. Because the Western part of Germany, for instance, became a, a, a truly a democratic republic, whereas the one that called itself a democratic republic became a communist uh, totalitarian state with, with a, a secret police, the Stasi, uh, regulating everything in close collaboration uh, with Moscow, like the rest of the satellites, all the countries that were actually incorporated illegally, uh, like the Baltic uh, uh, three countries. Uh, all that time, America has considered that uh, it was right and proper for all of Europe to enjoy the same benefits uh, for which uh, American soldiers died in two world wars, the First World War and the Second World War. This was a fight against tyranny and against totalitarianism, which was only half won, sadly, in the Second World War. It was won against Nazism, it was not won against Communism, There was a dividing line, there was a Berlin Wall, there was an Iron Curtain, there were two forces in the world and America constantly, year after year, decade after decade, said we support democracy and the rights of people to choose their form of governance, uh, uh, especially if their choice is for democracy. I mean, when uh, America invaded Iraq, I truly am shocked when I hear from the mouth of, a, of an American president uh, these doubts uh, about uh, the, the legitimacy of, of countries uh, in half of Europe uh, to be defended in what is an alliance which has been in place since 1949 and has worked extremely well.
4: Now, if the United States is does retrench from that alliance and, and uh, not indicating that they will, but if, let's say they do, what can, Euro- can Europe do to stay united and face down the threat that comes from its east, and uh, the threat from Russia, and what specifically do you think Central and Eastern European countries, Baltic countries, can do to, uh, to, to, uh, in reaction to what will be a major geopolitical shift?
3: Well, one thing that uh, in which uh, the reproaches of uh, President Trump are are, are, uh, actually, uh, they have a foundation is is the fact that Europeans have been some some member countries, several member countries, uh, too many member countries, uh, have not invested as much in their own defense, uh, in some way thinking, well, the Americans invest so much in their defense, we always have them uh, to fall back upon. And of course that is not the idea, and, uh, and uh, several um, NATO summits have re-emphasized the need for the Europeans uh, to contribute fully uh, to the commitments that Are there, as, far as they have made, and these have been reaffirmed, and certainly in the Baltic countries. Estonia has been fulfilling the 2% requirement for years. Uh, we had a very heavy uh, financial crisis in 2008, but we are increasing uh, our defence spending, we are increasing our, our, uh, what we spend on, on equipment and, and preparation, and yes, uh, we are getting uh, to have uh, this NATO contingent coming here, uh, and uh, certainly our troops are combat ready, they have participated uh, in combat zones uh, in many, many NATO missions, uh, and they are, are combat ready and ready to defend their country. And our, by the way, our national guard uh, has uh, has just uh, uh, announced that they are expanding uh, seriously uh, the numbers of volunteers who will who spend two two days a week uh, uh, engaging in uh, civil defense and various other uh, defense. Uh, uh, exercises uh, as a regular part of their life uh, and, 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 and carry, well, have arms at home and all that sort of thing, so that we are definitely uh, doing our part here as far as uh, the classical sense of defense, but the real defense is the unity of purpose of European nations, and that unity of purpose, of course, is a political thing, and to me that is uh, even uh, in many ways more of a vulnerability uh, of the Europeans when you, when you have uh, uh, so many nations having to come together and adopt a, uh, a decision uh, in a time of crisis, uh, I have been part of uh, a number of committees, one uh, by, uh, headed by Javier Solana and others about European defense. And uh, in um, an OSCE uh, committee chaired by Ambassador Ischinger of Germany, um, all of them have emphasized the need for Europeans to cooperate uh, in their common conception of, of common defense, so that whether they're part of NATO or not, Uh, The idea for those who stand for democracy of being able to cooperate, to defend it, I think uh, without it uh, we have completely lost our moral compass. Um, Already since the Wales Summit, I would say, NATO has been uh, really pushing its members to be more active. They have been doing that. That's precisely what they've been doing. Our defense uh, uh, budget here in Latvia has been increasing as our economy uh, recovered, I mean, every year and there's a commitment to continue this uh, and uh, obviously a small country can never have uh, the kind of, of uh, uh, army uh, that our neighbor has alone uh, that's uh, that's sheer arithmetic but believe you me uh, uh, we i think we're not only carrying our weight uh, in many ways we punch about above our weight because we have to as a small country
4: right. so how do you exercise prevention against uh, what we've against what is called hybrid warfare against you know interventions that are not interventions
3: uh well first you all you you follow uh very closely everything that's happening uh, around you and you you keep awake and you keep your eyes open uh, a country such as ours uh, which has a border uh, with a maybe in some ways unpredictable neighbor uh, certainly uh, maybe has to have, uh, how shall I put it, maybe spend fewer uh, hours sleeping, you know, and be more awake than others. But uh, NATO as an alliance is constructed on the premise uh, that uh, collective defense Uh, And collective defense based on common values and principles is something that is worth defending and working for. And this is why, for instance, we now have uh, elaborated uh, for our defense forces a chain of command which is integrated with that of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, with that of Poland, and then directly with the chain of command uh, in Brussels. Uh, Steps have been taken. Uh, of us having uh, uh, NATO countries, having closer defence collaboration uh, and and uh, preventive measures taken uh, with neighbours who are not part of NATO, who are neutral countries, uh, Sweden and Finland. And you see, uh, we, I think, being aware, yes, that there is a potential threat, but uh, let us not make uh, us sort of the, if you like, you know, uh, practically invite Mr. Putin in by saying, hey, uh, here's another novel by a former general who gives you a scenario as to, you know, uh, uh, a scenario for how to do it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, if you like, the worst case scenario would be if, uh, actually, yes, if they did, like in the books that Mr. Putin says, well, those Westerners are such cowards, <laughs> uh, and they're so indifferent to each other that they'll never lift a finger for anybody except themselves. Uh, and, but that, frankly, will be the, the end of not just the, the border countries who are directed maybe more, more, uh, like in the path of such a uh, motion, but believe you me, it will be the whole world that will be affected by it. And don't kid yourselves that you will remain in safety if uh, if NATO countries here uh, uh, start being invaded. Believe you me, that will be a very serious uh, bell that tolls for me as well. Uh,
4: One last question. Uh, Do you, uh, what are your hopes and fears as far as the future for NATO right now?
3: My hope is uh, that young people who are growing up today um, are not uh, quite like the V-generation. Uh, we, we heard the V-generation taking over power in Washington, I thought, when I was listening to the inaugural speech. Uh, but. Um, I see, uh, I meet with a lot of young people, both in, in the Caucasus. Uh, I've been to Central Asia and to Africa, uh, As Club de Madrid I, uh, I've been to South America, and what uh, amazes me are the women and the young people uh, who truly uh, feel that uh, whatever system of governance they have, it could be improved in my country. It's exactly the same thing. People feel we, we could be governed, we could do a better job of governing ourselves, and I say, yes, well, go to it, you know, do it. And that is what I say to everybody across the world. And this uh, the this slogan that President Obama had, oh, yes, we can, well, that is the principle of democracy, that you have a belief, you have a faith, you have a... An objective, uh, but good governance involves everybody believing in good governance, in believing in justice, in believing in human rights, in believing in the value of human life and of human aspirations. And everybody who talks about it doesn't put it into effect. Well, they just have, they do also have to work and roll up their sleeves and, and not just for, for breaking up unions, but for, for constructing both their country to be better, stronger, more beautiful than it ever was. And by so doing, I feel that in Europe, usually, I'm very much a Latin patriot, but I'm also very much a European patriot. I spent so much of my life in canada that i can't stand Uh, you know i i I feel for canada as well indeed for any country i visit i feel for it but my, my best wish is that people would understand that solidarity and the adoption of human humanitarian values and of democratic forms of governments is for the benefit of most people for most of the time, uh, and it uh, harms uh, only those who are not able to, to, to use this, this freedom as they should.
4: Well, thank you very much. That's an inspirational note to end on. And uh, thank
0: you so much. Really appreciate it.
3: It's been a pleasure talking.
0: Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at RealClearPolitics.com.